two scripture readings this morning. First is from the Gospel of Mark. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. The second reading is from the Gospel of John. So Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. He had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate. Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The title of the sermon this morning is Jesus and Politics. We're going to wade into that potentially dangerous subject matter by asking three questions. First, was Jesus a political leader? Second, how should Christians behave politically? And then third, what is the Christian view of power? Let me give those to you again because those are going to be the the three sections to this morning's sermon. So first, was Jesus a political leader? Second, how should Christians behave politically? And then third, what is the Christian view of power? We'll, We'll spend all of our time this morning just looking at those three sections. We'll take them one at a time. So first, was Jesus a political leader? And right off the bat, asking that question helps you to see how different Jesus is than every other religious figure. Because unlike other religious figures, he defies easy categorization. So, uh, for instance, if you ask, was Buddha a political leader? The, The answer is clearly no, not in any sense. If you ask, was Muhammad a political leader? Or was Moses a political leader? The answer is clearly yes, in every sense. But with Jesus, if you're going to do him justice, the only way to answer that question, was Jesus a political leader, is to say, well, yes and no. Yes and no. And that's actually the way that Jesus himself answers the question in those two passages that you just heard read. So the first one from from Mark chapter 12, this famous question where these other religious leaders come and ask Jesus, they say, should we pay this imperial tax to Caesar? 
And uh, the thing to understand about this tax is it's not just any tax. It's not a payroll tax. It's not an income tax. It's actually a head tax. And it's, it's levied on not Roman citizens. It's only levied on people from occupied countries like Israel. So the tax is an indignity, and it's more important symbolically than it is monetarily. Because by paying the tax, you're essentially capitulating. You're submitting, you're, you're laying down. And so the, the reason that these religious leaders asked Jesus about this tax is because Jesus has made a name for himself as this no-nonsense rabbi who kind of has authority, who doesn't uh, bow to anybody except God, and unlike the other religious leaders who were kind of uh, puppets of the state. So they're, they're trying to get Jesus to, to face this issue head-on. And the reason it says the passage says that the question was a trap the sense it's which it's a trap is that they think that either way that he answers the question, he's, he's going to be in trouble. So if he says, no, don't pay the tax to Rome, well, then what will happen is Rome will come and crush him because he's essentially calling for an armed revolt on the spot. In fact, this has just happened. Just in recent decades, another Jewish revolutionary had called for noncompliance with this specific tax and had been crushed. But if he, he says, yes, it's fine, go ahead and pay the tax, well, then basically he's admitting, I'm all talk. You know, I, I act like I'm a big shot and tough, but then when it comes down to it, uh, we all bow to Caesar. Same as you, same as you other religious leaders. And of course, we're, we're very familiar with this type of gotcha question today. You know, this is, this is what politics is run on, is these types of questions. And what all politicians have in common, regardless of how honest or dishonest they are, is that every politician, when they get a question like this, they all answer it the exact same way, which is to, to pivot. They, they briefly acknowledge the question, and then they just inexplicably start rambling about something else completely unrelated and hope that if they talk long enough, everybody's going to forget what was originally asked. And, you know, you're always sitting there thinking, well, just answer the question. But in some sense, it's not their fault. In some sense, they can't answer the question because the question has been specifically designed so that if they give it a direct answer, no matter how they answer it, they're going to take a big hit. And that's how this question was designed for Jesus. The reason I bring all that up is just to underscore how different Jesus is. Because he doesn't pivot, he doesn't avoid the question, he answers it directly, and yet he finds a way to answer it that's completely off the map such that he avoids falling into the trap on either side. Which is why it says, you heard, you heard read in the text, it says that the people, when they heard his response, they were utterly amazed. So what's so amazing about it? Well, what does he say? He says, they say, should we pay the tax or not to Caesar? And he says, well, bring me a coin. Bring me the coin, the denarius. It was a one denarius tax. Bring me the coin that the tax is paid with. So they, they bring him a coin. And he says, okay, whose picture is it on this coin? Now, they don't know where he's going with this, but they know they're in trouble because, you know, he's in complete control. Whose picture is it on this coin? And they say, well, it's, it's uh, Caesar's picture. And he says, okay, well, why is this so hard? Uh, it's Caesar's picture on the coin, so give back to Caesar what Caesar's. He gave you the coin to begin with. It's his coin. What's the big deal about paying the tax? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Oh, and by the way, give to God and only to God what's God's. And that would be you. Give to Caesar what has Caesar's image stamped on it. Give to God what has God's image stamped on it. Your life, 
your allegiance, your heart. So has he told them to, to pay the tax or to revolt? Both. Jesus, are you a political leader? Yes and no. Jesus, should we submit ourselves to Rome? Yes and no. And it's the exact same thing you see in the second passage, John 18. Here, Jesus, this is a conversation toward the end of Jesus' life, and he's having this, this talk with Pilate, who's the Roman governor of that part of the, the empire. And Pilate asks him just straight up the same question, essentially, that the religious leaders had asked him in the form of a test case. So they asked, as a test case, you know, are you a political leader? Should we pay this tax? Pilate just asked him, are you a king? In other words, does your political movement, or does your movement have any political implications of, of any sort? And Jesus is extremely cagey in his response. So sometimes when he gets asked a question in the Gospels, he just straight up answers it. But other times, like here, he, he's really deft. And, and uh, Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus' first response is, my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate's sitting there scratching his head and saying, did he, did he say yes or did he say no? And so he follows up with, so you are a king? And Jesus says, well, that's what you say. That's literally what he says. He says, you're the one that said it, not me. I mean, if that's what you say, I, I guess so. Deliberately ambiguous. Deliberately ambiguous. He could have said, yes, I'm a king. He could have said, no, I'm not a king. My, my movement is just spiritual. Instead, he says, yes and no. So that's the, the answer to the first question I want us to look at this morning. Was Jesus a political leader? And the answer that we see in the Gospels is yes and no. Radically and deliberately ambiguous. Now let's move on to section number two. Secondly, this morning, how should Christians behave politically? What we're asking here in the second section is, okay, in light of all that, if that's who Jesus was, then what does that mean for Jesus' followers? Which, of course, is the first thing that people want to know in New York when you start talking to them about Jesus. Is, okay, well, if I became a Christian, how would that affect me politically? You know, what would that mean for my political views? So what I want to do in this second section is to define the Christian political temperament, the Christian political personality. Regardless of which party you feel more aligned with, there are certain things that should characterize you if you are a follower of this yes and no Jesus. I want to define it negatively. So three things that Christians should reject in the political sphere. First, Christians should reject oversimplification. Reject oversimplification. So if Jesus is willing to, to be okay with complexity and ambiguity and saying yes and no, then Christians have to be okay with that too. But unfortunately, it's, it's the opposite. Christians are known for, they're famous for, bringing black and white thinking into this area, this arena that's made up of only shades of gray. You say, well, but aren't there some things that are black and white? You know, aren't there some issues that, that really are black and white? Well, not politically. There, there are issues that are black and white morally, but that doesn't mean that they're black and white politically. That doesn't mean that they translate into to political policies straight across, or even they tell you how you should vote. So two examples. I want to give you two examples from either side of the aisle, both of which we've talked about before on Sunday morning, so I'm not going to go into detail on either of them, but just to show you how this works. On the conservative side, uh, as a moral matter, the Bible is very clear that abortion 
is wrong. It's black and white, morally. On the liberal side, the Bible is very clear that the rich have a moral obligation to take care of the poor. It's black and white. Both of those things are black and white morally. We've talked about them before, like I said. So if you're a Christian, your moral views on those two subjects are set. There's no wiggle room. But it doesn't tell you what your politics should be, even if you do have those stances. Why? Well, because on the one hand, just because something's wrong doesn't mean that it should be illegal. For example, pornography is wrong. It can't be illegal. You cannot make pornography illegal. It would be the end of the republic. On the other hand, well, for a lot of reasons, but... <laughs> on, on the other hand, so not only the case that just because something's wrong, you can't make it illegal necessarily. On the other hand, just because something's right doesn't make you, mean you should have a law mandating it. Because the question is, well, what are the effects of the law? What are the consequences of the law? What if the law doesn't work? What if the law ends up doing the exact opposite of what it's supposed to do? So for you to say as a Christian, well, I'm a Christian and the Bible says that the rich are supposed to take care of the, the poor, so therefore I'm going to vote Democrat. That's all there is to it. End of discussion. Well, you're being overly simplistic. On the other hand, if you as a Christian say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm pro-life, therefore I'm going to vote for whoever promises to appoint conservative Supreme Court justices to overturn Roe v. Wade. End of discussion. That's all I need to know. Well, all I have to say about that is, it's a good thing that politicians can't lie. (laughs) Because if they could lie, and they caught wind of the fact that, that the Christian political thought process was that simplistic... There'd almost be this temptation to just say they were going to do something and not have any intention to do it at all. The most famous uh, Supreme Court case on abortion since Roe uh, in 72 was Casey in 92, 20 years later. Of the the five justices that upheld Roe in Casey, and the, the court has upheld Roe time and time and time again over the last 45 years. Of the, in, that, in that case, in Casey, the five justices that upheld Roe, you know what all five of them had in common? All five of them had been appointed by Republicans. Three of the five had been appointed by Republicans post-Roe who specifically promised to appoint pro-life justices. So for Christians to say, well, I'm just going to vote for the guy who promises pro-life justices into discussion That is a disgrace to Jesus. That type of thinking gives Jesus a bad name because Jesus wasn't a chump. Jesus was okay with ambiguity and complexity. Jesus realized that this is politics. You have to be shrewd. Jesus was okay with yes and no. That's the first thing. Reject political oversimplification. Secondly, Christians have to reject political syncretism. And by syncretism, I mean this merging of your faith with your politics, where the two are one and the same. And Jesus rejects this when he says, no, 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 these are two separate things. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and give unto God what is God's. So you've got your religious obligations, and you've got your civic obligations, and you can't mix them, but, but Christians do exactly the opposite, unfortunately. And, and crusade is if you're... So it, it's important for Christians to have political opinions. 
it's equally important for Christians to not act as though their political opinions are the Christian position and act as though their cause is a righteous cause. In the 1912 election, Woodrow Wilson was running against Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt, at the, at the convention, in his convention speech, in one of the absolute low points of his career, uh, he, he ends his convention speech with this climactic line, which he yells. He says, we stand at Armageddon and we battle for the Lord. And Wilson was the, the son and the grandson and the nephew of Presbyterian ministers. So in other words, nobody is going to be more put off by that. And nobody's going to pick up on how wrong that is quicker than Wilson. Of course, Roosevelt has this, you know, a very distinct accent and way of speaking. So it became Wilson's favorite bit around his house to impersonate this line for his family. You know, we stand at Armageddon and battle for the Lord, making fun of it. And it is funny because it's so ridiculous, but it's also very sad and very scary to, to bring God into the political conversation in that way. There's, there's a word for that. You know? so, so you've got Wilson, a truly devout guy, who, who understands that there's not, there's not a place for that. You don't, you don't use God's name in that way. And then you've got Roosevelt, who, if he can score some points and get people fired up, he'll use this biblical language. And the word for that is, it's, it's called using God's name in vain. It's the second commandment. And what Christians should do is, as soon as somebody does that, we should walk out. We should leave. Because this is getting weird, and it's not supposed to be like that. Instead, we do the exact opposite. And if a person starts using biblical language or starts talking about God, it's like, oh, well, we like that. You know, we're, we're, that, he sounds like us. No. Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what's God's. There should be nobody that's a bigger proponent and bigger defender of this idea of separation of church and state than Christians. Christians should be leading the charge on that. There should not be prayer in public schools. There should not be the Ten Commandments on the courthouse wall. There shouldn't even be prayer at the inauguration or in Congress because these are two separate things. And it's Christianity and the church that loses out when you, when you put those together, because what, what's, what's the idea there? The idea is that you can pledge allegiance to the flag and to God in one breath. And it's just not the case. It's just not true. So that's the second thing. Re- reject political syncretism. Third, one last thing before we move on to the, the final section. A third thing that Christians have to reject in the political sphere is we have to reject political separatism. And this is the other side of the coin of the, the syncretism piece. So you, you got to find this middle road because on the one hand, you can't act like your political opinions are, are part of your religious faith. On the other hand, you can't say, well, you know, I don't care about any of that stuff. I don't care about politics. I don't want to be involved with that. It's too icky. It's too messy. It's too unproductive. So I'm just going to separate myself out. And we're not going to talk about that. In Jesus' day, there was this group called the Essenes who went and everything had gotten so bad that they just went and lived in caves and dropped out of society. Of course, the the modern Christian equivalent of that is the Amish. Um, I hate to beat up on the Amish because they're so nice and they make such good pies. Um, But they're wrong. They're, they're, They're just wrong. Jesus says when he touches the coin, when he takes the coin, this blasphemous, idolatrous, dirty coin. What he's saying is you have to live in 
the world. You have to participate in the system. Even if the system is corrupt, you can't just drop out for the sake of your own moral purity and say, well, I'm not going to get my hands dirty, which is what Christians do. You know, they say, well, politics, it's so, so ugly, we're not going to be involved. Well, why do you think it's so ugly? One of the main reasons it's so ugly is because the church has refused to be involved. Why is Donald Trump on the ballot on Tuesday? Which everybody can agree is a bad thing. Even if you're voting for him, you would rather be voting for somebody else. So why, why did this happen? Who is to blame for the fact that this guy's on the ballot? The church. The church is to blame. Because if the church had stood up in January and said, look, out of all of these people who are running for the Republican nomination, you can vote for any one of them you like except one. One of these guys is clearly out of bounds. If the church had said that, we wouldn't be here today. But instead, the church didn't speak up until it was too late. Because it's, it's icky. It's politics. We don't want to get involved. And you say, well, wait, a minute ago you were saying you shouldn't fuse your religious views with your political views. And now you're saying that the church should have stood up earlier to denounce Donald Trump. So, so how do those two things go together? Those seem contradictory. Well, they are contradictory. That's the whole point. Yes and no. It's, there's tension. Reject syncretism on the one hand, separatism on the other. You have to walk this tightrope. And I'm certainly not saying it's easy. I'm certainly not saying that anybody can do it perfectly. You're going to always be falling off on one side or the other. But it's what you have to try to do, that narrow road, walk that narrow road. If you're going to follow this Jesus, who when asked whether he was a king said, well, that's what you say. That's the second section. How should Christians behave politically? Third and lastly, this morning, uh, I want to shift gears here a little bit at the end. And to my point, this is, or to my mind, this is by far the, the most important point. So if you haven't heard anything so far, if you disagree with everything so far, at least hear this part. The third thing I want to talk about is what is the Christian view of power? Third and lastly, this morning, what is the Christian view of power? Because obviously that's what politics is about, power. You've got your vision of how you think the world should be, and you need power to carry it out. So how are you going to get it? How are you going to get power? Well, it's, it's always been the same thing historically. It's taking different forms. It looks a little bit different in different eras, but it's always to get power, you have to fight for it. You have to go and take power and then punish your enemies once you get it. So, you know, if you think about like an armed revolution, like the French Revolution, you go in, you storm the palace, you physically take power and you kill all the royals. You punish the people that, that you're taking power away from. You send them to the guillotine. But it's the same thing today when you fight to win this election and then you, you punish all of the old administration. They all lose their jobs. You send them all packing. That's the typical approach to power. The way you get power is you fight for it, you get it, and then you punish all your enemies to protect it. And Jesus... We see this in the passage in John 18 this morning. Jesus' idea is, what, what if we did things differently? What if instead of trying to take power and then punish my enemies, what if I laid down power and then let my enemies punish me? And you say, well, that, that's, that's just called losing. You know, that's not, that, that's, I mean, what, what's the point of that? But it actually can be a revolution. It can be a, a revolutionary revolution, a revolution that revolutionizes revolution because if you do that on purpose, not if it just happens to you 
against your will. But if you do that on purpose, if you give up power and allow your enemies to punish you, then what it does is it throws the whole system into a tailspin because nobody knows what to do with you. And this is the meaning of Jesus' famous teaching about turn the other cheek. If somebody hits you on one cheek, turn and let them hit you on the other cheek also. Which is thought to be this uh, like pacifist kind of doormat type teaching, but it's not. Because actually he doesn't say if somebody hits you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. What he says is if somebody hits you on the right cheek, turn to him the left cheek also. Well, why does that matter? Why does it matter that it's the right cheek? Well, in that day, everybody was right-handed. Left-handedness was discouraged from birth. Everybody's right-handed. So to hit somebody on the, the right cheek with your right hand, the only way to do that is with a backhand. And in that culture, a backhanded slap was the worst insult you could give to a person. You were asserting your superiority over them by saying, you're not even good enough to hit straight on like a normal person. So Jesus says, well, what do you do if somebody does that to you? You stand there, and you take it, and then you turn back, and you look them square in the eye, and you say, now hit me again right here. Hit me again on my left cheek. And for them to do that is going to require them hitting you with their fist, like you would fight an equal. See, it's not just laying down. It's giving up power as a way of shaming evil. It's submissive, but it's subversively submissive. You're trying to use the power of evil against itself. And Gandhi got a hold of this idea in the 1920s and 30s and said, this is unstoppable. King got a hold of this idea in the 50s and 60s and said, this is unstoppable. And it was. It is unstoppable. In fact, it's actually a more reliable way of gaining power and keeping it than the typical approach. Because the problem with the typical approach is where you, where you fight. You fight and, and try to take power for yourself and then punish your enemies. The problem with that approach is, well, number one, it just leads to this escalation of violence where you're just always doing to the other person uh, one worse than they did to you. So it's this nuclear arms race where everybody's going to be destroyed. But the other problem with it is, is that it's this revolving door. You spend all your time trying to get power, but then four years later or eight years later, somebody's going to take it away from you. And all the time you have the power, you spend trying to protect it and keep that person at bay. So, so you're on top, and then they're on top. And then you're on top, and then they're on top. And in the end, you just cancel each other out. And nobody has any power because you're always spending all your energy fighting for first place. But the, the funny thing about last place is that nobody's going to fight you for last place. You can be the perpetual incumbent in last place. You can, you can stay in last place for the rest of your life. And from last place, you can change the world. You say, how so? Well, look at these two passages this morning. In both passages, you've got Jesus, and then you've got some political leader from that day and time. So, you know, on the one, he's talking with Pilate, this governor. And the other passage with the, the coin, they're talking about, not just a governor, they're talking about the emperor, Caesar, whose image is stamped on the coin. Jesus and Caesar. This is uh, A.D. 30 or so, so the, the Caesar in question is Tiberius Caesar. We know who the Caesar was. We also actually still have the coins, the denarius. They're in museums, and if you look on the coin, it's got Caesar's picture, and it has an inscription, and the inscription says, Tiberius Caesar, king, high priest, son of God. 
Tiberius Caesar, king, high priest, son of God. In other words, uh, Tiberius Caesar was not just a political leader. He was also seen as a divine figure. He wasn't just obeyed as king. He was also worshipped. His kingship and his divinity were accepted by the people. What about Jesus' kingship and divinity? Well, the exact opposite. That's, that's what you see in this passage. When these soldiers are making fun of Jesus, you know, before his crucifixion, it's not just that they're making fun of him in general. They are specifically making fun of this absurd idea that he's king. You know, that's why they put the, the fake robe on, the purple robe, the fake crown, the crown of thorns. Oh, you think you're a king? They're specifically making fun of this idea of his divinity. Oh, you think you're the son of God? Well, the, the problem with that is everybody knows that Caesar is the son of God. So if you're the son of God, we'll, we'll blindfold you and we'll hit you. And then we'll, who, who hit you that time, son of God? Prophesy. Who hit you that time? Who spit on you that time, king? In other words, Caesar's approach worked and Jesus' approach didn't work because Caesar took the typical approach to power and it landed him on a throne worshipped by everybody in the empire. Jesus tried to take this backwards approach and it landed him on a cross. At least that's how it looked 80, 30 or so. That's how it looked then. If you fast forward to 2016, things look a little bit different. Because the question is, well, uh, who worships Tiberius Caesar today? You know, where are, the, where are the Tiberius Caesar rallies? And yet, here we are, a couple hundred people, at a Jesus rally in New York City in 2016. You say, well, I'm a couple hundred people, that's not really that many. That's true, but if you go down Greenwich Street, to, when, when you get to Murray, you're going to run into Trinity Grace Church, where there's a couple hundred more people right now. As we speak, they're having a, a Jesus rally there, too. If you go down one more block from there, turn left on Barclay, you're going to run into St. Peter's. They're having a Jesus rally there, too. If you keep going down Barclay, turn right on Broadway, a couple of blocks, you're going to run into St. Paul's. Couple hundred more people there too for this Jesus rally, and if you keep going down Broadway, eventually you'll run into Trinity Wall Street. They've been having Jesus rallies there fifty-two Sundays a year since 1697 on that same piece of land, and that's just downtown. If you go up to Harlem, there is a Jesus rally happening almost on every block. The entire neighborhood is dressed up in hats and suits and dresses going out to Jesus rallies. If you go to East New York, there are 30,000 people at the Christian Cultural Center right now, as we sit here, singing and clapping and dancing for Jesus. Where, where are the Tiberius Caesar rallies? And the point is, the person you think is important is not important. And the thing you think is the story is not the story. Because what we've been told for 18 months now is that the story is this election. That this is what matters. This, it doesn't matter. Liberal, conservative, everybody. The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, every blog, it doesn't matter. They all say the story is this election and the people who are going to make and break 
history are the people who are running for president in this election. Which, I mean, is exactly, if you'd asked a, a journalist in AD 30, you know, what's the story? The story's Tiberius Caesar. The story is whatever is going on in the Roman Senate today. And maybe way back in the fine print at the bottom of page D35, you'd see one line about, well, some rabbi was executed in Palestine today. But, but who really cares about that? Which is sort of the same way that the, the journalists treat the whole thing today. It's like, well, yeah, 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 religion, fine. Christianity, sure. But what really matters is politics. But that idea is just getting more and more untenable as the decades roll on just by looking at the sheer numbers. Because today, the, the campaigns are having rallies. You know, and they'll have you know, tens of thousands of people at these rallies. Maybe hundreds of thousands of people if you combine the rallies. But the question is, how many people are going to be at those rallies next Sunday? Zero. How many people could you get to come out for a rally today for Millard Fillmore or John Tyler or Chester Arthur or James Buchanan? Zero. And so the question I want to ask journalists is actually the same question I want to ask some of you, which is when are you going to wake up and realize that the story is Jesus? The story has always been Jesus. There's only one story. There's only one king. There's only one high priest. There's only one son of God. So, yes, give to Caesar what Caesar's, but give to Christ, and only to Christ what belongs to him. Your heart, your allegiance, your life. Let's pray. Father, we've come here this morning to worship you. Jesus, we've come here this morning to worship you. And we know by giving ourselves to you, by spending our lives for you, by dedicating our days to you, we know that we're, we're part of something that actually matters and actually lasts, unlike everything else in this world. So we thank you for that this morning. We thank you for the privilege of participating, for the privilege of worshiping you. And we ask you that as we yield ourselves evermore to you, day by day and year by year, you'd, you'd show us what it means to participate in a democracy in your name. You'd show us what it means to, to live in a society with other people, all the while remembering that nothing is as important as you are. We pray these things in your name. Amen.